Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 244, Haston's Advance. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. This week on the Members Feed, we dig into some more of The Last Kingdom, which we still do love, even though now they're pretty clearly getting some stuff wrong. Here's a clip. The filing of the teeth and the dying, that is a practice that we've yes, seen. Yes, we found their teeth, and, and it looks like that's stuff that they did. He's described as a sword Dane and a lord of war, and I've been trying to figure out, because I haven't seen any reference to something called a sword Dane. I think that's Bernard Cornwall making something up, and my guess is that... It is a reference to the fact that if you owned a sword, because swords are so hard to get your hands on and so expensive, that that is a major mark of wealth and power. The problem is, is that the prop guy has given anyone who can stand upright a sword in this TV show. So they want to elevate swords and yet they've already made them kind of cheap. Yeah. What they should have done is given everybody but Uhtred a few people and this guy axes and spears. Even how Uhtred gets a sword is this bizarre story where it's made in like a day, like it's no big thing. I know. Um, which, no. <laughs> no. You can't just go to your local Jiffy Lube and be like, can you make me a sword? And they're like, oh, yeah, come back in three hours. I'll be ready for you. Yeah. Not how it worked. You can get instant access to that episode and all the other members episodes by signing up for membership at the British History for only about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Stone, Dylan and Nick for signing up already. Quote. Then came the king's troops, and routed the enemy, broke down the work, took all that was therein, money, women, and children, and brought all to London. And all the ships they either broke to pieces, or burned, or brought to London, or to Rochester. End quote. That's what the Chronicle has to say about Athelred's siege of Haston's fortress at Banfleet. As we spoke about last week, we don't know how many women and children came with the fleet, but it's clear from the Chronicle that they existed. These Scandinavian forces have been evolving for quite some time, and the presence of family members reflects another evolution. We don't know how long this has been going on. This is the first textual reference to it. But it's clear that these armies were no longer behaving as pure raiding bands. Including families suggest that they were taking cues from prior successful armies in Britain, and were proceeding with an eye towards conquest and settlement. But Haston was also a Vikinger. He hadn't given up the lifestyle. He was still here, and he was still looking to make his fortune. And for the second time, Athelred had misjudged him. The first time was in assuming that he could be tamed through Christian ritual. Those baptisms and the oaths of peace clearly didn't work. But the second time was in thinking that taking his wife and children captive would rein this Vikinger in. Haston was not standing down, but he was reeling from a terrible defeat. His mighty fleet of ships, which had given him a tremendous amount of flexibility, were now either in London or at the bottom of the Thames estuary. He was landlocked. He also had to acknowledge that his numbers were dwindling. He had lost the men that were holding the fortress at Banfleet, and while he had attracted the Danes of Appledore, most of them were injured, 
and they were a shadow of that once mighty fleet that had landed in the Weald. But despite these setbacks, Haston wasn't leaving. He was digging in at his new fortress at Shubury, and he was making plans for his next campaign. So, despite Athelred's hopes, Haston wasn't pacified. He was escalating his operations in Britain. And I think the only thing that we can be sure of here is that he wasn't doing this for his family. The best case scenario here is that he thought his wife and children were killed by Athelred's forces, and thus he had nothing to lose. And that's the best case. But it's entirely possible that Athelred had sent messengers to notify Haston of the condition of his family. But in that situation, Haston must have believed that plunder outweighed the very real possibility that his family could be executed by the Eldermen of Mercia in response. And frankly, I think that is the more likely scenario. Ragnar Lothbrok and his sons were long dead, but Haston was still a Vikinger, and he wanted what he came here for. Wealth. And he wasn't alone. As the fortress of Shubri was being constructed, word of the attacks on Wessex were spreading far and wide. And before long, quote, a great reinforcement, end quote, of warriors came to his fortress from nearby East Anglia and even from Northumbria. Meanwhile, to the southwest, the greatest share of the army of Wessex was under the command of Alfred, and it was moving south upon Exeter. The king was at the head of it, and he was ready for a fight. This wasn't just some random collection of pirates. These were the very same people from Northumbria and East Anglia who had sworn to keep the peace with him. The very same people who had lied to his face. And 60 ships in Exeter and 40 ships in Devon might have seemed like a large force back when Appledore housed a fleet of 250 ships. But Alfred's son had broken that fleet. And now it was Alfred's turn to break a fleet or two of his own. And he had the force necessary to do exactly that. The problem, though, was that the army besieging Exeter realized the same thing. They knew that if they stayed outside those walls, they wouldn't stand a chance against the army of Wessex. They needed to get inside, but the people of Exeter had no intention of letting them in. So, weighing their options, the Danes decided to quickly board their ships and flee the area. And that must have been disappointing. Alfred had come looking for a fight, and clearly... He didn't want to be let down like that again, so he summoned his navy and dispatched them to Devon. It didn't matter how long it would take, or how difficult it would be. With the fleet hemming them in, there would be no escape for these oath-breaking pagans. But it would take time. And so Alfred prepared for a long siege. Meanwhile, on Shubury, Haston's numbers were swelling. And Abels points out that these were not just raiders, they were also settlers. They were coming with their families. The fortification was turning into a settlement of his own. And suddenly, Haston's selection of Shubury began to make a lot of sense. He had no intention of using it to launch raids into the surrounding countryside. He simply wanted somewhere safe to keep his loot, and a secure place for his warriors to leave their families and camp followers behind. And so warriors kept trickling in. But the most critical thing that the East Anglian and Northumbrian reinforcements brought were their ships. Haston's fleet was restored, and with it came his mobility. 
and scouts no doubt brought word that Alfred's naval fleet had moved to the south to support his army's attack upon the invasion forces in Devon. That decision had left the waters exposed, and through them, Haston would have his revenge. So he set about organizing his forces, and he didn't waste any time. He loaded his warriors upon the ships, leaving their families at Shubury, and he struck as quickly as he could up the Thames. It was a bold move. He was headed straight for Athelred City, London. Now, the city of London had recently repaired its Roman walls, and it was also supported by a burr at Southwark. So London was a fortress in itself, and it waited for the fight that Haston's fleet would bring. The defenders of that ancient city mounted their walls, prepared their defenses, and watched the longships sail up the Thames. They checked their weapons and held fast as the fleet drew closer and closer. And they watched as the Norse longships rode right past them. Haston and his army hadn't come to siege the city of London, nor had they come to reclaim their stolen ships, nor even their family members. They had other plans, and the people of London were powerless to do anything to stop them. The pirates were so close to their defenses but not close enough to be reached. Instead, the walls of London and the Burr of Southwark were nothing more to the Danes than a scenic point of interest. In an instant, the West Saxons had learned what the Franks already knew. It wasn't enough to simply defend the lands with burrs. You needed a network of bridges protected by forts to protect the waters, just like they had in Paris. Or else, the raiding fleets could cut right through your lands. And that's exactly what Haston had in mind. He would strike up their weakly defended rivers, stretch their army, seize their wealth, and demonstrate the weakness of these people and their god. In recent months, the West Saxons have been focusing their forces to deal with the three invading armies active in eastern Mercia and southern Wessex. And the thought was likely that this strategy had left western Mercia largely undefended. And since those lands hadn't been repeatedly struck by Haston and others, They also probably would have been richer targets. So Haston and his men rode right past London, right past where his wife and children were likely being held, and they continued on. Now there were burrs along their journey. Sashes, Wallingford, Oxford, and Crickdale all would have had a complement of soldiers on hand, ready to defend their territory. And all of them would have been incapable of stopping the Danes on their journey west. Then... Once they reached either the River Churn or the River Colne, the fleet turned north and headed towards the Severn and began following that river. In a short voyage, they had cut across nearly the entirety of Alfred's kingdom from east to west, and neither the Mercians nor the West Saxons could do anything to stop it. It was a devastating strike and one that exposed an enormous weakness in Fortress Wessex. There was just one problem. Those burrs they were passing weren't just isolated forts. They were part of a regional network. And as Haston traveled upriver, messengers were traveling all throughout the south, notifying and activating war bands. These burrs were the linchpin in coordinating West Saxon military operations. And even though they couldn't stop the fleet, the burrs were still operating as intended. Furthermore, even though Alfred was in the southwest dealing with the two fleets that were operating down there, 
He had quite a number of capable commanders throughout his kingdom that were experienced and ready to handle the situation. So soon after the fleet began its journey upriver, Elderman Athelhelm of Wiltshire received word of what they were doing, and he knew exactly what needed to be done. Athelhelm was a veteran of countless battles who had actually been with Alfred since the guerrilla days on Athelney. He was one of Alfred's most trusted companions, and for good reason. He had a sharp tactical mind. And Athelhelm realized that while he couldn't counter the Danes on the river, he could track them, and he could keep the other commanders in the region notified of their movements. And that way, they would be able to strike when the time was right. So he summoned his mounted infantry, and they set off to follow this invasion force. As these Danes moved up the Thames, as they were moving up the Severn, Athelhelm and his men were watching, and they were sending word to the commanders in the region. And those commanders were answering the call. To the south, in Somerset, Elderman Athelnoth, the mighty noble who had come to Athelney and helped turn the tide against Guthrum, answered the call of duty. And he raised a great army from the available forces in the region and began to march north to support. From the east came Elderman Athelred of Mercia and much of the victorious army from the battle at Benfleet. From the west came the forces of Poes. Eldermen, thanes, churls, common folk, they all grabbed their weapons and armor and began to march. The entire available forces of Wessex, Mercia, and Poes were converging on Haston's fleet. And because Elderman Athelhelm's mounted army had been tracking them, they all knew exactly where to go. Haston and his forces, however, continued following the River Severn until they reached a point that they felt was defensible and near lands rich enough for plunder. It was called Buddington, and there they constructed a fortified encampment. But the warriors of southern Britain were already closing in. This was supposed to be a raid in classic Vikinger style. They were using speed, audacity, and cunning to weigh things to their advantage. Haston had done his job. He had spotted an opportunity, sailing far from the bulk of the forces that had plagued them. And yet, he had gone straight into a trap. He and his men had scarcely completed the construction of their encampment when scouts would have arrived with word of approaching soldiers. A lot of soldiers. What they had been expecting were undefended or lightly defended settlements. But what awaited them was a massive army that consisted of, quote, all the king's thanes who were then at home from every borough east of the Parrot and both west and east of Selwood, and also north of the Thames and west of the Severn, and also some portions of the Welsh people. End quote. Have any of you seen the film The Professional? Bring me everyone. What do you mean everyone? Everyone! Yeah, I get the sense it was a bit like that. Haston hadn't taken into account the speed and efficiency of the Burgle system. And now, he was facing impossible odds. Furthermore, based on the fact that he had selected a location this close to Offa's Dyke, it's also plausible that Haston was counting on the support of the Welsh. After all, they were the traditional enemies of the Mercians, and Haston was at war with the Mercians. So the plan here might have been to try and open up a new front in the war and bring in yet another kingdom into the conflict. But things had changed. King Anarod ap Rodri and the other kings of Wales had submitted to Alfred. 
the South wasn't fractured like it had been in the past. As the Welsh arrived and took position with the Anglo-Saxons, it became clear that the South was united. This was a disaster, and the Danes immediately fled into their encampment and sought to strengthen their fortifications against the coming onslaught. And they must have done a pretty good job of it, because there are reports of remnants of the ramparts being visible as recently as 1874. But meanwhile, the forces of Wessex, Mercia, and Wales continued to flood into the area and set to work constructing their own camps on both sides of the Severn. They had Haston trapped. And given the speed of their advance, they knew that the Danes lacked the resources for a long siege. The combined Anglo-Saxon-Welsh forces would simply starve them out. And so they prepared to do exactly that. And days passed. The lands around Buddington are verdant fields, and the combined forces probably had ample supplies, especially since they'd be able to call upon nearby burrs for support. But inside the Danish encampment, it was another story entirely. They were close to the river, so at least they were able to get water. But as for food, their food stocks ran out pretty quickly. And the Saxon-Welsh forces were simply too numerous for foraging parties to be able to escape the walls and then come back in with food. They were trapped in here. And the hunger began to set in. They hadn't prepared for this. They had prepared for raids, for lightning strikes. That's why they brought their horses with them. Their entire strategy centered around their ships and their horses. But now they were getting desperate. Horses were useful in raids, and they were a valuable commodity at market, but that would only matter if they survived this siege. And right now, they were trapped and starving, and they couldn't get out, not even on horseback. So rather than being useful, these horses had just become another mouth to feed, when they could instead be a source of meat. And so the Danes slaughtered their horses, one by one. The hunger was held off for the time being, and so days turned to weeks. But eventually, the horses ran out. Most of them were slaughtered, but worryingly, not all of them. Some of the horses simply starved to death themselves. A stark reminder of what awaited the Danes if this situation didn't change, and fast. And one thing was becoming painfully obvious to Haston and his men. Athelnoth Athelred, Athelhelm, and all of the others apparently had no interest in offering terms. This army had come to kill them. All of this waiting behind their walls had been for nothing. They couldn't force terms. They needed food, and they needed to escape. And desperation can bring a strange sort of courage out in a person. So the Danes donned their weapons and armor and burst from their defenses. They all had only one goal escape. They weren't there to obtain victory. They weren't seeking to claim the field. They weren't trying to take any location. It was a single-minded battle. If they stayed there, they would die. So they needed to get out. Period. The account of the battle fails to provide us with any tactics that were employed. So any narrative of this battle would be entirely speculation. But however the fight was carried out, whether it was a night attack or in broad daylight, whether it was on many fronts or a concentrated single attack. We are told of the outcome, 
and what we're told is that it was a bloodbath. The combined Welsh-Saxon forces suffered heavy losses, with many thanes dying in the struggle, along with one king's thane named Ordhe, and he must have fought particularly bravely to deserve being named. But for as bad as the local losses were, Haston's army was in a far worse position. The Danish losses were catastrophic. But they did eventually break through and escape. However, just because the Danes were outside of the encircling enemy forces didn't mean that their troubles were over. They were deep behind enemy lines, and they were without ships or horses, and between them and their safe harbor at Shoebury lay a terrifying network of burrs that were no doubt sending out patrols looking for them. But they had no choice but to try to navigate those lands, all while being hunted by the combined Welsh-Saxon forces. So for around 200 miles, they ran. The scribes don't tell us how long the journey took them, but even if they made it a straight shot, even if they were able to move quickly along a direct route and they didn't spend time hiding from patrols, circumventing burrs, and tending to their wounded, even then, we would be looking at about a week of travel before the remnants of Haston's fleet made it back to their fortress at Shoebury but it was likely a great deal longer than that. Then finally, at last, they reached their fortress. But the gods were turning against them. The siege at Exeter had failed. The campaign from Appledore had failed. Haston's lightning strike had failed. And though they still lived, their numbers were few and what reinforcements they might have been able to draw from the East Anglian Northumbrian fleet were now tied up behind Alfred's siege at Devon. Everywhere they turned, they were met by vast numbers of Anglo-Saxons and the Welsh. And Haston's fleet were all too aware that they were also hunted men, being pursued by one of the largest combined forces that the region had seen in an age. Simply because they made it back to Shoebury didn't mean that they would be safe. Nor did it mean that they would be welcome. These recent troubles ran a substantial risk of wearing out their welcome with the East Anglians. And if Athelred, Athelhelm, Athelnoth, and their army marched upon Shoebury, who knows how the East Anglians would react. Furthermore, with their dwindling numbers, who knows whether they could even withstand another punishing siege. And Shoebury wasn't meant for this sort of engagement. It was supposed to be a safe place for their families, ships, and loot, not a battlefield. And given how enraged the Welsh and Saxons were, and given how many of them there were, Shoebury was a bit too close to the raggedy edge to be truly safe. So what was left of the exhausted, battered army placed their families, their ships, and all of their plunder under the care of their East Anglian allies. It would have required a great deal of trust, or maybe just desperation. But the hope was that their families would be a great deal more protected deeper into the kingdom's territory. However, simply protecting their families and possessions wouldn't be enough. It seems that the East Anglian authorities made it clear that while Haston's army didn't have to go home to Scandinavia, they couldn't stay here. But the Vikinger army hadn't planned for that. They didn't plan for any of this but they had to figure out something quickly. 
because unless they led the Welsh Saxon army away from Shubury, their families could end up in chains, or worse. But they weren't going to leave Britain. They came a Viking, and that's what they intended to do. But first, they had to draw this army away. So Haston's forces did what their enemies least expected. They dashed across the kingdom and charged towards the abandoned city of Deva, now called Chester. And hopefully, behind those old Roman walls, they could hold on. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter. You can find us at British Podcast. And we have a lot of other communities you can join. And you can find links to all of them in the upper right-hand corner of thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Thanks for listening.